HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hi, I'm Steve Jenkins. I work for Fairway Markets in the New York area. And we're awfully proud to support Heritage Radio. And we care so much about everything that goes on out here at Roberta's in their studio because they talk to people who are, are serious about food and that's what we are at Fairway is we're serious about food. We we just care very deeply about about you as a as a customer and how you cook and what you cook with and how you entertain and and that's why we love to support Heritage Radio because it, it it's pretty much the same thing. It's wanting to to find happiness through serious food and people who are serious about it and and care about learning everything there is to learn about it and that's that's we're kindred spirits if it's something worth having in your kitchen you're going to find it at, at fairway and if there's somebody worth talking to about food you're going to find them on heritage radio and we will be supporting you guys for a long long time at fairway i'm your personal grocer steve jenkins fairway market Boys are mellow as a honeydew. Yeah, that cat is high. Look that look in his eye. Oh man, he's high. Yes, higher than a kite. Welcome back to the Speakeasy. I'm your host, Damon Bolte. It's a rainy day in Brooklyn, New York, and a perfect day to be drinking some gin with my good friend. Global, ambra- uh, global ambassador for Tanqueray Gin, Angus Winchester. Welcome to the show, Angus. Thank you very much, Damon. It's a rare and uncommon pleasure to be here. <laughs> well, I'm glad you made it out. Um, so you're actually, you do come to New York and to, to the United States a lot on business, being the, the global ambassador uh, for Tanqueray. Indeed. I mean, I actually used to live here and work here about uh, 17 years ago now. Showing my age somewhat. You're, you're, yeah, you're definitely uh, dating yourself. <laughs> um, but uh, you are in town right now for uh, a very special event, uh, a cocktail event called the Manhattan Cocktail Classic that is now in its, I believe this is the third? Second year, I believe. Second year, but it, uh, I, I always uh, count it off by the uh, the number of galas that have, right, uh, yeah. <laughs> have happened. Um so, being in town for this event, um, you've put together with, uh, there was one event at Esquire at the Hotel and Daz with, uh, with Tanqueray Gin where there were some bartenders. I 
had the pleasure of uh, being a part of that, where there were some straight razor shaves and some cocktails to be had before the gala, uh, along with some other events. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the uh, the presence of uh, your brand? Oh, um, well, obviously, MCC is now firmly established as one of the sort of key events on the, the global bartender's calendar, mm-hmm. as well as you know, probably the premier event within the U.S. So it was something that obviously Tancray and myself had to be at, uh, and we were trying to figure out exactly what to do. And... As we've realised that Tanqueray is particularly special and particularly suited to that sort of first drink of the night, we thought we'd run a series of almost like pre-events running in the evening from five or six o'clock in the evening till about eight or nine, where we provided that first drink of the night, which I always think of, you know, that aperitif is almost like uh, a sort of the cloak by which you lay over the puddle between day <laughs> and night or work and play. So we were doing a series of events there, obviously, because Tanqueray has that sense of establishment and style and classicism, we wanted to demonstrate some of that know-how. So we provided services for people to get you know, their suits steamed before they went off to the gala. And, of course, you know, a, a good wet shave, which uh, I think is you know, as classic and as you know, a manly art as martini drinking. Absolutely. And it was a beautiful, uh, a beautiful setup. Uh, it was yourself uh, behind the bar and uh, Toby Chikini. Yep, indeed. Who else was back there? Leo DeGroff was back there. Leo DeGroff, Mr. Brian Miller. Brian Miller was there. Steve Olson stepped behind it for a little bit yesterday. So uh, we had some of the greats back yeah. there. David Wondrich showed his face at one point. Yeah, uh, of course he did. He we, didn't get a shave, but... No, indeed. <laughs> there were the free drinks on offer, you see. So uh, yeah. he was definitely turned up. Absolutely. And it was a beautiful view, actually. The, uh, the penthouse right across the street from the... Uh, New York Public the Library. The New York Public Library. Yeah, so uh, just... Looking down at the the library, uh, as you put it like a like a, a pre-show event. Uh, it was a really stunning view, and it got me ready to go down uh, go down to the uh, to the line in which I uh, waited for a little longer than I expected. Well, I think the, the uh, <laughs> queue watching from the balcony there, because you know, even by eight o'clock, with the garden not even starting till about nine, there yeah. was a queue a block and a half in each way. Uh, but it, it's crazy. The yeah. interesting thing was there was a civilians queue and a trade queue. Right. Uh, and you know civilians really good at queuing, so that queue actually went in a lot faster than all the trade who kept spotting <laughs> their friends in the queue ahead and kept right. sort of pepper potting each other. So Absolutely. it just became an amorphous mass. Yeah, and we kept looking back up to the uh, to the corner of the Andaz Hotel, and all you could see were these bright emerald green lights illuminating the corner of the top of the building. We're going, man. And sure would be nice to be back there drinking <laughs> drinking a Negroni or a 50-50. And a lot of smug and contented faces up there as well. <laughs> so um, did you get a chance to roll into the actual gala that night? I didn't, it has to be said. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, you make drinks for what we thought was three hours, but ended up as about four and a half. Uh, and, you usually know, how it goes. That takes it out of an old man like myself. Yeah. But uh, no, I hear it was truly fantastic. And I know, obviously, I mean, Brian Miller was over there making uh, Tanqueray Rickies, which are mm-hmm. one of my favorite drinks, normally Absolutely. because of the bad quality of the soda water you get, uh, the, the tonic water you get in an awful lot of bars. Mm-hmm. So fresh lime, some soda, fantastic drink. And I think it was probably very popular there because of its refreshing quality. Absolutely. There's a lot of talking going on, and uh, a lot of dancing to some of the great music. And, and it gets hot in that library as well. Indeed it does. It's nice yes. to have a nice refreshing uh, cocktail. Yeah, definitely. Um, during that event, uh, or during this, uh, this entire MCC, uh, the Manhattan Cocktail Classic, uh, over the past couple of years since it started, have you, I mean, obviously it's, it's grown to a point to, I, I wouldn't lump it in with uh, an event with, I would, in a way, lump it in with an event like uh, Tales of the Cocktail just because of the similarities. Uh, many classes and seminars, lots of brands represented, lots of fun things to do, mm. and uh, a very communal 
respect for the trade and like for for people doing the things that they're doing in their different corners of the globe um do you feel like i like what are some of the the differences being someone that's a veteran of both of those events what do you think new york has over new orleans well i think i mean the major difference between it is new orleans tales of the cocktail is very much more a a trade event Mm -hmm. the organizers may hate me for saying that but it really is a sort of you know a once yearly gathering of all the predominantly american bartenders but increasingly you know i see people there that i've met in germany and australia and japan and china Mm -hmm. so it's got that sense but it really does feel far more trade orientated so the talks are i mean the first day is entirely for professionals or aimed at it with the pro series but then after that it's really aimed at a a slightly more academic bartender and i think this year coming up there are three talks on ice including one about the use of the chainsaw I don't, think, I don't think civilians and chainsaws and alcohol should necessarily go together. Yeah, let's leave that in the hands of the professionals. Um, but whereas Manhattan Cocktail Classic, far more, I call them civilians, but basically people who aren't involved in the drinks trade or the drinks writing trade. And it's great to be able to interact with people who are, to a certain extent, our end customers. You know, be us bartenders or be us representing drinks brands. In a absolutely. way that, you know, they get to ask questions. We brought over Tom Nickel, the master distiller for Tanqueray. And, you know, myself, Steve Olson, and Tom Nickel, normally, you know, either of the other of us would be quite a draw, but we just sat back and let Tom talk about, you know, this fantastic liquid and how he goes about making it. And just to show his passion was fantastic. And the response from people who, you know, they may love Tanqueray, but have never really necessarily considered how it's made. To see this uh, small bearded Scotsman, you know, to be able to understand him was quite an interesting feat. But you know, the passion he has for it was great. The more, the more tankeray you have, maybe you can uh, understand. His uh, I'm, I, I, you have to pay pretty close attention to Tom because, I mean, not only does he have a broad Scottish accent, he's been involved with distillation now for I think 38 years. Wow. But uh, you know, he gets very excited. He's very passionate about what he does. So uh, you know, alcohol or not, you know, he always starts to speak quicker and quicker as it goes. <laughs> You know, uh, I like what you're saying about that um, with the uh, the difference between the, the Manhattan Cocktail Classic and the Tales of the Cocktail. Both great events. Indeed. Well, I mean, both spiritual homes of the cocktail to a yeah, certain extent. Absolutely. And so equally deserving of a, such an event. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you're right to say that, uh, that the Manhattan Cocktail Classic, well, being in New York and uh, being a little bit closer to, you know, like the north. The, the great northeast mm-hmm. where uh, we've got a lot of cities close together with a lot of really amazing restaurants and uh and restaurant programs uh, farm to table uh great cocktail bars i mean really it's the start of cocktail bars in or well, just bars in general mm. in the united states and then it moved you know out westward um and i think that but, i mean the leap in it's actually reflected very well in mcc because yeah. whereas at tales it's pretty much based around the hotel monteleone right and sort of seminars going on in rooms there Whereas at MCC, we have the Astor Center, which mm-hmm. is a fantastic venue, but also we, there's a sort of diaspora out to all these great bars that you mentioned and the opportunity again to go to a bar that you love going to and actually hear the owner talk about the trials and tribulations of setting up, the theories behind it, to be able to see some of the small little details that maybe when you're enjoying a cocktail and staring deep into the eyes of your loved ones in the slightly darker space, you don't notice some of these touches. So yeah. you know that's another one that they really do hero not just the bars not just the bartenders and the, should we say the drinks brands but also like the physical spaces themselves yeah that yeah and there's so many just classic spaces that people have taken and turned them basically renovated them and made them into a classic a, a reborn space with that that energy and that vibe and created something that 
New York City was always known for, you know, great bars, great hotels, uh, great restaurants, you know. Well, it, I mean, it was known for having a lot of bars, and it definitely had a lot of historic places, but, I mean, now one of the problems with that is some of the great historic spaces, the hotel bars especially, because of their union domination, right. tend not to be quite as reactive to what current trends are at the moment. And, I mean, when I worked here, as I say, 15, 16 years ago, nobody had a cocktail list because the idea of telling a New Yorker what they were going to drink <laughs> just didn't happen. And right. everyone was a, a slash. They were a, a bartender slash model, bartender right. slash, and nobody worked full-time in one place, whereas now you've got this professional culture coming through. Bartending is seen as a respected and respectable profession, and we're attracting a lot of younger people who may have moved into chefing, perhaps, or sommeliers mm. and things like that. But now we're keeping them in bartending. And a lot of civilians, like you were saying before, it's like the, and enthusiasts. There's mm. so many enthusiasts nowadays that, it, like, over the last couple of years, since the beginning of just the Manhattan Content Classic, you see so many more, like, you, I, I, I don't like to say, I say non-industry. I don't mm. like to say civilians, yeah. but I, same thing. Um, but... You, like you were saying in the queues and uh, the MCC, like specifically the gala, there were a lot of people that were non-industry. They're just into it because it's a learning experience for them, and they're into it. They're, you know, that's not maybe it's probably not what they want to do with their lives, but they're into it and they respect it. No. Um, then again, also another thing that you were saying about uh, New York with the hotels and the union and stuff, we're starting to see a change even over those last couple of years. These last couple of years. Um, with places like the Ace Hotel and the Standard uh, that aren't necessarily unionized uh, to that old way of thinking about it. Mm. We've got places like the Jane and uh, you've got bars in the lobbies with really great, uh, like yeah. respectable cocktail programs. Definitely. I mean, I just, the Rum House and the Barrymore. You indeed. Know? I mean, I think you know, we are saying, especially as, you know, I mean, we're sitting here in Brooklyn. When I was here, no, you know, nobody came over to Brooklyn. Everyone came to Manhattan to be yeah. cool. But, uh, you know, we are seeing, obviously, the renovation of whole areas, be it Tribeca, Meatpacking District, things like that, that, uh, you know, these new hotels are reflecting that newer vibe that New York has. And, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I think it works perfectly. It's really cool. Like, about, God, I want to say a decade ago, Jeez, I'm starting to date myself. Um, <laughs> I was out in L.A., uh, downtown L.A. at the uh, the Standard, and went to the rooftop bar. I believe someone like Anton Newcomb was DJing up there, the guy from uh, the Brian Jonestown Massacre. And it was just this whole scene. It was before the cocktail bar started popping up in Los Angeles, because that's still a fairly That's a very modern thing. innovation. Yeah. Last couple of years. There was still, like, the, the Broadway bar... Um, the like seven grand and that that whole group that owns a lot of stuff but there was no uh there was no edison there was no um well la's biggest Coles, claim to flame in the, famed in those days well, there was, was Coles, the, the, home, <laughs> the home of the apple martini right it was like really i wouldn't tell well, too you know people. and another thing that gets overlooked by and even though it is a vodka drink again the you know the moscow mule being like probably the most famous classic Vodka cocktail. Well, I mean, I'd say Cock with, and bull without that drink, we would not be drinking vodka today because, you know, you drink vodka neat, you know, chilled, room temperature, the way the Russians and the Poles did. And then, no, John G. Martin, in a desperate effort to make his product that he bought for $14,000. <laughs> 1937, you buy Smirnoff for $14,000. I've seen bigger bar tabs than that now. Yeah. But, you know, he convinced by mixing this product, it could be a successful one. I feel like I've had bigger bar tabs than that, personally. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, yeah, great. Um, okay, so. Let's take a quick break, and then when we come back, uh, let's talk a little bit more about some of the cocktails that we've had over the last week at the Manhattan Cocktail Classic, specifically uh, 
Well, let's mix up a Negroni. Cool, cool. All right, we'll see you in a moment. Guys. is a public service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Tune in to Greenhorn Radio, hosted by Severin Von Scharner Fleming, every Thursday at 2 p.m. Greenhorn Radio is radio for young farmers by young farmers. Helmed by acclaimed activist, farmer, and documentarian Severin Fleming, Greenhorn Radio is a weekly phone interview session surveying America's cutting-edge under-40 farmers. Again, that's every Thursday at 2 p.m. on the Heritage Radio Network. And we are back at the Speakeasy. I'm Damon Bolte, and our guest today, a really fantastic man by the name of Angus Winchester. He's the global ambassador for Tanqueray Gin. Welcome back to the show after the break. That was funky. Uh, well, it was funky. I mean, I'm a big believer in music. I think music in bars is really important. And actually, myself and Brother Cleve from Boston are doing a talk at Tales this year on like cocktail culture music the effect of music in bars oh absolutely and uh, also on the effect uh, on the effect of cocktails i think i mean most of my cocktail recipes either come to me from inspiration from a song or a band an album you yeah. know i think it's i mean it's one of the most evocative sort of senses yeah. should we say that hearing music thing so mm-hmm. uh, it was nice of you to play that tune for me cheers well, cheers man um so on this rainy day in brooklyn uh I could think of no better cocktail to uh, have on a, a, a nice dreary day or a very sunshiny day uh, out by the pool than a Negroni cocktail, which you've just mixed up for us. Indeed. Well, I mean, I think, you know, close your eyes, sip on this, and you do feel slightly like you're back in Milan. And, uh, you know, it's all a little bit sort of continental and uh, dreamy like that. So it's a fantastic drink. I mean, Campari tell us that this is the year of the Negroni. Mm-hmm. I've been bartending for 23 years, and just about every year for me has been the year of the Negroni. Right, every morning. Uh, no, no <laughs> not every morning. Uh, you know, it has a time and a place, and yeah. that's one of the things that we hope to sort of educate people about, yeah. that, you know, the aperitif is not just, uh, you know, a fancy name for an early drink, but actually, you know, it should cleanse the palate, it should stimulate the appetite, and right. you know, with the gin, the campari, the astringency together, is fantastic for just, you know, as I say, making that sort of clean break between the working day and the fun of the evening ahead absolutely and then negroni actually has a a long rich history i mean and it was it's 
the second variation essentially and there was like the milano torino then there was the americano then the negroni and then so on and so forth yeah and obviously the milan torino was because you know campari from milan and vermouth mainly from turin they put them together of course if you talk to someone from turin it's a torino milano yeah <laughs> all about that then we had the americano which was very much i mean for a long period in italy an awful lot of cocktails mixed drinks were called americanos because the only people who drank them were sort of americans who right. came across and loved would these, mix. these fancy mixed drinks that italians yeah. were a little bit more confused by and then you had this you know, legendary story, which Dave Wondrich, the historical oracle, has still not yet managed to uh, ruin for us by proving it's not <laughs> true. But this idea that Count Camillo Negroni, who you know had been a gambler in America, you know we call him a Florentine aristocrat, but he had worked as a you know a gambler and a cowboy in America, which is where he right. got his taste for these sort of fancier drinks. Asked for his americano, but you know minus the soda, and now fortified with a little bit of gin. So. I've seen recently a few arguments going on on certain sort of internet notice boards. There's a, there's a rather strange Pascal Negroni, I think, who claims that his branch of the family, in fact, invented the Negroni. He's got wow. no proof other than a couple of other references on the internet that he probably put out there. But <laughs> it is a great cocktail because it's so simple. I mean, it's got three ingredients, whether you have it up or on the rocks, the proportions. Now we have better vermouths, mm-hmm. as long as you're at Campari, and a good juniper forward gin. I mean, I think, you know, it just says gin, you could use anything, but, you know, juniper has that miracle quality that it works with the bitterest ingredients in a bar, tonic water, Angostura bitters, obviously Campari, all the way through the spectrum of flavors to the sweetest ones with an Alexander. So, you know, as long as it has that element to it, you will have a fantastic drink. Absolutely. I mean, uh, what, what is your uh, the, what's your favorite way to drink a Negroni? Do you like it like up, stirred, or do you like it on the rocks with a you know like every time? I, and maybe we can debunk something here. Um, there's an argument between a lot of bartenders that I know that if you have a Negroni on the rocks, it's supposed to have a dash of soda mm. or a seltzer in it, and then if it's obviously I've, starting up. I've heard so much about that. I mean, I actually posted, I did a trial video of myself making a cocktail once just to see about the filming more than anything else. And in order to get certain facts across, I stirred it and I served it straight up. Now, that has now been watched on YouTube by 25,000 people. And the amount of comments back, mainly from Italians, saying, this is not the way you do it. As far as I understand, it should be built it should not be stirred, it should be built. It should be the gin in first, then the vermouth, and finally the Campari. Stirred briefly with a half slice of orange. Hmm. Soda, rather like the old-fashioned. I see a lot of old-fashioned recipes that say they should have a splash of soda on the top of it, right. not to just to look, dissolve the sugar, as a lot of people used to do. But I wouldn't put one in. I'm happy to put Prosecco in there as a Negroni Sabagliato. That's a great touch. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think it has inspired bartenders to look at it and play about with a whole bunch of other ingredients. I was being talked about a product called Camelings, actually launched, set up, created by a bartender in the UK. And it has, I think, 32 different botanicals within it. He doesn't call it a gin. It's more of a ginseng-based spirit. But I've had a lot of people say it makes a great Negroni. Wow. So, I mean, it's a, a great test for bartender skill. I, I travel the world, and the first test I always do is, can I have a gin and tonic? And if you just give me one... You're a vending machine. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter how, you know, the nice glass Absolutely. or the cold draft ice. Whereas if you ask me, would you like a particular gin? Do you have a favorite gin? That shows me, A, you know there's a difference between gins, and B, you care that I may know there's a difference right. between gins. And right. to say, I'll have a Negroni however you want it, I get to see their interpretation of it. And it's, you know, we talked about music. I love cover versions because you know the song immediately yeah. and you can 
then marvel at the interpretation, the arrangement of it. And I think a classic cocktail has that aspect to it too. That's a great analogy, man. I love that. Um, and you know, it, nowadays with so many great bartenders out there, we've all got our own variations on the Manhattan cocktail. You know, an old fashioned, and, and especially an Negroni. Mm. Um, and, and I like that you brought up the gin and tonic as well, because I've been recently uh, working my way through Tobacchini's book, Cosmopolitan, and. Uh, I'm going to connect these two here in a second. Um, he talks a lot about, uh, in the beginning of the book, about uh, mixing gin and tonics with his father. Oh, yes. And it's a great segment of the book. Mm. And the first time, I, I actually had I've known Toby for a couple of years now, and I, I hadn't picked up his book. I've known of it, but I I was a little late to mm. that game. But um, I was at a, a Tanqueray event at uh, New York City's uh, Death and Company, where... Uh, like, I guess it was seven, six or seven drinks. Uh, there was a fifty-fifty. I believe it was a fifty-fifty mm-hmm. martini, um, a gin and tonic, uh, last word, uh, French seventy-five. They got thrown out there at one point. That wasn't. I don't, I don't think it was on the schedule, but it got thrown out there later, and it was it, a really it, great test. It's a great drink. So, and uh, it was a really cool test because of the uh, first of all being a sour, but also being uh, royale. Mm. Um, let's see, there was a gimlet and. Uh, a Negroni, I believe. Hmm. And yeah, so I mean, I think a martini, of course. Uh, but um, but that story was told while the uh, gin and tonics were being prepared, and it's something that totally gets looked over by so many bartenders. I mean, pretty much every bartender in the United States, and it's just something out of a gun and some well gin and some slice of lime that's been sitting on the bar forever that's not even cut properly yeah, I, I always call them vintage limes vintage they have a lovely limes. gold filigree around the yeah, outside totally. but no, I spent last summer I did 25 cities in 13 weeks around America judging what bartenders were doing with twists on the TNT because the TNT, a Tanqueray and Tonic is it's a bar call you know, the yeah. industry has to a certain extent said that Tanqueray makes a great gin and tonic by it's giving what I it use. its own sort of, you know, its own nickname and bar call. So that's fantastic. 293 Tanqueray and tonics later, over the course, as I say, 90 <laughs> odd days. And sipping was what I did. I never finished any drink. A lot of the time that was a good thing. Some of the time it was like, I'd like to stay longer. But to see the creativity and whether you were infusing the Tanqueray with beets, splash of an apple cider vinegar and tonic, which was the winning drink. Or just simple, but with some real care and attention. If you can't make a good gin and tonic, I'm not going to trust you with some $16 signature cocktail that's Absolutely. got star anise Absolutely. foam, etc. on the top. <laughs> so I will always start with a, with a gin and tonic. See what questions you it's ask. Me. Test. Yeah, it is. And as I say, it also inspires creativity, and we saw so many great versions of it. Uh, as you say, tonic water is a slight problem because... You know, we've seemed to have turned what well, you know, the cocktail was a culinary art form and we've turned the restaurants of yesteryear into fast food places where, you know, when it gets busy, you have that cheeseburger moment where, you know, you look at the picture <laughs> and you look at, you know, what's the problem here? And you now it was bars get busy, so service and quality decreases. And the amount of people who rely on the gun and don't even think to ha- have bottled tonic just to offer as an upsell. Yeah. You know, they upsell on everything else, but for some reason tonic water seems to be left behind. But we are getting better tonic waters now, more artisanal, ma- more handcrafted. Absolutely. Natural sweeteners, <clears throat> and you know you can start, start to know the difference between your Congan and your Rwandan quinine and things. Right. <laughs> Could be worry, but still. <laughs> there, I, I was so excited a few years ago when I was uh, visiting L.A. on a trip, and... Uh, went to a bar and there was 
a gin and tonic portion of the menu. It was kind of like a build your own gin and tonic. Hmm. And you could actually, I can't remember the name of this bar. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't one of the, the names that you hear a lot. It was just a place that went to in Silver Lake. And, uh, there was the option of a few different gins. Mm-hmm. I think one of them was like Junipero because yep. it's, you know, it's local. local. Yeah. You get a lot yeah. of that. Tanqueray, uh, Beef Eater, and I want to say like Plymouth. So it was like the big three and, you know. Something quirky and artisanal. Local, yeah, something local. Yeah, I mean, the, totally. The local craft distillation thing in the U.S. is just going mad at the moment. Which is great. Yeah, indeed. Well, no, I was in Colorado and, you know, there were four Colorado gins that all use... You know, local juniper and things, and one of them put pine on the, needles from one of the put, side of the Rockies. Well, one of them put as a trademark or a little phrase on the back with a trademark sign: "This is not your grandmother's gin." Now, my grandmother's ninety-three years old and has been drinking gin for about you know eighty odd years. I would trust her when she starts <laughs> talking about gin rather than someone who's been making it well for put. fourteen months in you yeah. know, Denver. It is nice to see on the flip side of that, though. It is nice to see people with enthusiasm about spirits or for spirits. Don't, um, don't get me wrong. I love the passion. As long as they're not jumping into it because they're like, hey, you know, there's, there's money to be made here, which exactly. you know, is no bad thing. But well, it's, the, it's the same thing with uh, a lot of cocktail bars nowadays that are popping up. It's like maybe they're jumping on a bandwagon because they see the uh, financial opportunities. It could be the same way, and I do believe it is with certain brands, which I won't name. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I think so, but I mean, I always go back and say, look at the Japanese. I mean, here are a culture that have built their entire economy basically on being able to both reverse engineer and perfect the manufacturing process. They started making whiskey in the 1930s and it's only in about the last 10 years that they've started making stuff that really is getting universal acclaim. So these guys making, you know, artisanal gins and rye and things like that, fantastic. And you know, if they're still in business in five years time, they will have learned more and their products will be better. And in Absolutely. 10, 15, 20, 25 years, they will get better all the time and they need to realize that. Mm-hmm. Now, I think it's an important thing that you can't straight out of the gate start making a fantastic product because distillation is difficult. And gin distillation, we, you know, we introduced Tom to say gin distillation is probably the, you know, the highest example of the distiller's art because if you mess this stuff up, you can't filter it, you can't stick it in a barrel for 25 years and then right. sell it as something quirky. Right. You know, it is a man, a recipe, you know, ingredients, and a still, and it takes. 38 years worth of distilling experience to be able to produce something, even though the recipe and all the tools are there for Tanqueray. And that's why Tanqueray has been around for so long. It has, and let's not forget, Charles (laughs) Tanqueray started off as a 20-year-old in England with no distillation experience in any way, shape, or form. So, you know, it may be a fantastically large brand now, and it may be, you know, such a standard that some people look a little bit beyond it because they see it as being sort of dull and staid, but it is a benchmark. It is the for many people, they're Desert Island Gin. And I think rather like Johnny Walker Black is people's Desert, desert Island Scotch. You know, it is a standard, a benchmark. Go mm-hmm. and experiment, but realize if you want to go back to see what gin should taste like, then go to that green bottle on your back bar and it'll never let you down. Absolutely. Um, right before we sign off here in just a minute, uh, why don't you run us through your favorite gin and tonic recipe? Your personal favorite. Interesting. I mean, I obviously, you know, everyone says, what's your favorite drink? And I normally say it's the one you're just about to buy me. But (laughs) if I am at home, I will take, actually, I've got some Spanish Copa glasses, which are like a large goblet wine glass, which I picked up in Spain, which is these gin and tonic glass over there. They love the gin and tonics. Really big ice cubes. I mean, if you can get bigger than cold draft, that's fantastic. But really good, fresh ice cubes. A gentleman's measure of tanqueray, squeeze a fresh lime, and then a couple of dashes of peychaud bitters. 
Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I you know, I like the idea of pink gin. You know, it's yeah. one of the few cocktails the Brits can claim to have invented. Uh, <laughs> and you know, I think with Peychaud, it actually does look pink, as opposed mm-hmm. to the slightly brownish colour that Angostura right. gives you. And then, as I say, just really cold. And I think that's the sort of key to it. And it's so refreshing. You know, gin Tanqueray adds brightness to just about mm-hmm. every drink, and all those drinks that vodka has co-opted. You know, from the Bloody Mary to the Gimlet and the, the Martini. The gin gives it that brightness. And so, you know, the coldness as well, the astringency, all of these things just make it a fantastic night. And when that first, you know, sip hits my lips, you know, I can sort of feel myself de-stressing. Uh, and that's, that's a great feeling. Angus, it was really my pleasure to have you on the show today. And I hope next time you're in town, you can come back by and uh, talk to me. I would love to be here again. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks for coming to New York City and talking to us. Cheers. All right. We'll see you next time. Cheers. Look in his eye. Oh, man, he's high. Yes, Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. Yes, he's high. That cat is high. Look at that look in his eye. There's no problem that Dave Arnold can't solve on his show, Cooking Issues. Take a little listen. So Naveen writes in and says, Hi Dave, I'm fascinated by chocolate, especially the transformation from the bitter seeds of the cacao tree uh, to a tasty chocolate bar. That is a, a, a very interesting transformation. Are there any other foods that undergo a similar set of steps, fermentation, roasting, grinding? Also, do you know of any other tropical fruit seeds that could become delicious through such a process? Thanks, Naveen. That's an interesting question. I mean, obviously coffee, right? Coffee goes through uh, you know, a similar, uh, similar set of procedures, uh, quite literally, uh, fermentation, drying, roasting, grinding, uh, brewing. Um, and uh, vanilla goes through picking uh, fermentation, right? It's dipped in, usually in boiling water, uh, and then wilted, and then fermented. So it's similar, and then I guess it can be ground to form a paste. But vanilla doesn't taste like vanilla until it goes through its its uh, its paces um, to be fermented. In fact, the vanilla that's uncured is called red vanilla. You can get it. Uh, it's interesting. If you like what you hear, you can hear a new show every Tuesday at noon on the Heritage Radio Network, or subscribe to the podcast, or check out the archives on our website. This is Behind the Scenes Food News with Katie Kiefer. This week, I came across a new website from the American Meat Institute and the American Meat Scientists Association. It's called www.meatmythcrushers.com. It is purports to be addressing consumer concerns about additives such as sodium nitrates in your, um, you know, ham and turkey roll and whatever, and animal welfare and food safety. I noticed as I went through the uh, Meat Myth Crushers website, however, that it did not address anything like uh, subtherapeutic uh, antibiotic use in the meat chain. So um, I'm not sure how many myths they intend to crush. But, you know, as I say, always say, it's good to know what the opposition is thinking. And if you want to be fair about any uh, issues around the food scene, it's wise to keep up with their press as well as ours. That's it for Behind the Scenes Food News with Katie Kiefer.
following is a message from Heritage Foods USA. In the next few weeks, Heritage Foods USA will be offering an interesting variety of amazing products, ranging from top quality seafood to their famous pork cuts. At the end of May, the Heritage team will go up to Maine to harvest fresh lobster with sustainable lobster meat. These delicious lobster are a perfect way to kick off the summer season. In the pork department, Heritage Foods USA will offer the maple-cured smoked boneless Heritage ham at an unbeatable price. This offer won't last long, so get them while you can. Place your order today at heritagefoodsusa.com or call 718-389-0985. That's 718-389-0985 to place your order with Andrea or Ashley. And don't forget to sign up for the email list and to check them on Facebook and Twitter to get in on their new products, deals, and offers from Heritage Foods USA.